preaching. So we called an audible and moved the mic down and did the best we could. Good. I figure God's going to get the glory no matter what happens, right? Amen? Makes it nice in some regards. Oh, goodness gracious. It's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. I'm honored, uh, blessed, privileged, however you want to say that, to be here today to be able to bring the good news of the Word. We're in 1 Peter um, chapter 4, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today. I know we've broken some of this up, and one might think, maybe you should break chapter 4 up. Well, we're not going to. I'm going to try and get through this entire thing today. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of central themes in Peter, and uh, my, my hope, we were talking about this a little bit before church, the, the manner in which we are preaching, Mike and I, are to go through the Bible, uh, and we pick books that aren't, we're not like starting in Genesis and moving all the way through, but we take a book and we're trying to preach that book in its entirety, which gives us an opportunity as a church in small groups to plug our small groups to study that book in its entirety in depth. And uh, for me, I find it incredible how the context of the Scripture helps a great deal in understanding the Scripture. And I, my hope, of course, is that as we study this together, that, hey, we're in 4 and we're 5 or 6 or 8 or 12 or whatever chapter we're in in a book, and we're making these, call, these calls back to chapters 1 and 2 and 5, and we're seeing how these, these themes connect. They do connect other places in the Bible, too. The, unquestionably, that's the case. But there's a theme that we can get, and we can understand something about Peter and what's passionate, what, what he's passionate about, what makes a difference to him, and what he's telling us to be concerned about. Not that he's the only one that's going to tell us those sorts of things, but I think today is a wonderful example, for my money, of where Peter's heart lies as he's writing this book, what he wants for us as people, thus likewise what I want for us as a church. So with that, let's... Uh, Jump on in. We'll be in 1 Peter 4. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it with. If not, it should be up on the screen. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, and though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we venture into chapter 4 of Peter and we see some themes emerging about suffering, uh, about submission, about maybe managing our expectations and our role on this earth and in your church, Lord, I pray that we can, as usual, approach this with an open mind. Lord, help us not to get caught up in what we want or what we think we understand or the path that we've laid out for ourselves as people, uh, as a church, as a, as a family, and to, to be able to read your word with, with, with no prejudice about what we think we understand, Lord. Some of these verses are very challenging. Uh, some are very clear on their face, Lord. I'm thankful for both of those cases, Lord, and I'm thankful for a, a church where we can gather and study this together. In your sense, I pray. Amen. All right, I called this sermon, Get a Hold of Yourself, because that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. So real quick, does anyone want to go over submission again? <laughs> I know three weeks is plenty, but the reason I'm bringing it up is when we talk about submission, it's generally not preached over very often, or maybe in passing you hear it at a lot of weddings or things like that because there's some verses related to husbands and wives and submitting, and those are controversial because people don't understand what submission means. I hope we as a congregation understand what biblical submission means. It's the same as worldly submission, but in the world, that word has been changed into something that can be far more nefarious for multiple reasons. But in the word of the Lord, when we talk about submission to one another, submission to authorities, submission to God, it's the same mindset that I am no longer in control and I am going to willingly do what my master has asked. We submit to the world because we submit to the Father. And the Father told us to submit to the world, so I'm doing it. I don't believe that the world, I don't believe that my wife, I don't believe that people that I'm serving are uh, deities or uh, are all good or do the right things. That's not the case. But God is a deity. He is all good and only does the right things. When he says do it, I strive to do it. This is a central theme of Peter's work, perhaps related to his failure to do so once upon a time. Right? Peter's story starts is most well known for a gross lack of submission and a desire not to suffer, denying Christ. After telling Christ, Christ says, you'll deny me, submitting to Christ would have said, oh, Lord, help me. Lord, help me in my denial. But he doesn't submit to Christ speaking the words to him and says, oh, you're nuts. I would never do that. Maybe these idiots, but not me, Jesus. I would never do that. Spoiler alert, he did it. It's a well-known story. And now when we read these words... We should bear that in mind. This is a man who has been through some pretty dark times. I imagine he has spent a lot of time in his head crying out to God, ashamed, wanting God to kill him, but God keeps putting him to work. You're going to show your face. You're going to say you blew it. You're going to tell them what not to do, how to be better than what you had done. And who's going to do that? Me, Peter, not you. And that's why we are reading what we're reading today. So, suffering. If there's anything that goes right with submission, it seems to be suffering. If that seems surprising, 
It shouldn't be. Our mindset is to suffer as Christ did. This is exactly what Peter is saying here. Now, this is a mindset. When it comes to suffering, this is tricky. I'm probably going to reiterate this a few times, but our goal is not to just suffer. We don't, we don't need to actively go out in the world and look for, oh, here's a hill. Let me fall down it. Here's traffic. I'll go play in it, right? Let me start a fight and get beat up and say, woe is me. That's not the point of this. But Christ suffered in the flesh willingly and saved all of us. That's the kind of thing that when we talk about a mindset, that's what we need to have going on in our head. The world hated him. The world killed him. If I emulate him, if I tell his truth, stands to reason the world will hate me and maybe kill me. Maybe. Now, we may not be called to suffer as Christ. We may not be called to be flogged and and ridiculed and have a crown of thorns put on our head. That may not be our calling. It may be. They may treat you exactly like Christ. But we can still share his attitude no matter what it is. Even if it's being maligned, if it's being left alone, if it's being excluded. And he's touching on all this in this chapter. But our mindset is different. When we look at these, these first couple chapters here, this, this passage is very controversial and it's misapplied often. The reason I say that is, when it says... Arm yourself the way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. It's that ceased from sin bit. I've heard this misapplied in that if you're still sinning, you are not saved. I'm telling you that is not true. When we talk about cessation from sin, if you are suffering from flesh, if we think of this here, Christ, of course, never sinned, suffered in the flesh, and now is alive. If we are suffering in the flesh, then, I mean, one could argue perhaps during the suffering, <laughs> you're, it's very difficult to sin perhaps while you're being flogged, especially if you're suffering for Christ. But it's that last part. We see this all the time in Peter's writing. This is important because of what Christ did. Here's another thing to think about because of what Christ did. It's the exact same thing, to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The cessation here isn't that a sin has gone away from me. The cessation is that I am no longer bound to sin. There is no sin in a believer's life that they will be stricken with and cannot be dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean you won't spend the rest of your life fighting that sin, but you are not a slave to it. You've got to know that when it comes to the mindset. We still sin, but we're no longer slaves. There will be sins that you'll cease from doing. We've talked about this a lot. Maybe not everything, but a few things. Rejoice, church. You want to stop smoking, but you can't. And someone else came to Christ and they, quit, they kicked it in two weeks. Rejoice with them. Right? Rejoice with them. If you think that quitting and, and very quickly wasn't suffering for them, it is. But they're suffering. If they're suffering for Christ, if they're quitting smoking, so because they're called to do that or whatever, rejoice with them. But we're no longer slaves. And then as we follow on to that, great, so we're no longer slaves to sin, so now what? It's time to live like we believe. Not for human passion, but for God's will. And I know what you're thinking, what's God's will? Well, Peter tells us what it's not, if you heard that list. Here's not God's will. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's not God's will. But what is it? Peter would probably tell you it's going to be suffering, right? I mean... God's will for our life is not as easy to delineate as the things that we can clearly say are not God's will. Now, in some regards, that's like uh, non-believers, oh, that's like Christianity to a T. Here's everything that they're against. 
Sure, there's things that are good indicators, pitfalls that believers want to stray from. But what's Peter admitting here? What the Gentiles want to do. Church, if we look outside these walls and we see people living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, sounds about right. We shouldn't be shocked by that. I'm not saying let's go out and participate and win them from it. I'm not going to go to the orgy and witness Christ. That's silly. That's what Peter's saying. You can't do that. But don't walk around and, and, oh, look at these fools and they're drunk and that's not me. I don't get drunk. Well, you're drunk on pride. Holy smokes. Sinners are going to sin. You're a believer and you're sinning. The expectation that the world's going to somehow snap out of this and start to act right and that means anything is foolishness. Our will, or God's will, what we want to do is follow God's will. And to do that, we have to seek the Lord. We're going to ask God what we should do. Is it, God, am I being called to go to this drunken orgy? No, church, you are not. That, is, that could be a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. I've heard this nonsense before. I think I'm being called to steal. I've got to feed my family. You're not. You are not called to steal to feed your family. Desperation is desperation. I get it. But that is not something we are going to ever be called to do, to sin, uh, to somehow start the process. Then we can you know, re- repent of that sin, and then they come and repent of their sins, and this, that, and the other. It's exactly what Peter's warning about. You can't have a foot in both camps. If what you want to do is follow God's will, if you're in the midst of these, you might want to check yourself. Beyond that, be in prayer. Get part of a local body. Figure out what's going on. Same thing there as it is today. I want to serve the Lord. I want to figure it out. Let's study together. Let's understand what God's called us to do. And it may be small, simple things at the beginning. But what Peter will tell you is those small, simple things lead to a little bit bigger things that aren't quite so simple. And then further beyond that, then pretty soon you find yourself standing in front of a group of people who may not want to be your friend anymore because of what you believe. I don't know if anyone's ever lost a friendship over something like that, but that's suffering. Even if you know that what they're doing is cancer to you and, and causing you struggles with your walk with Christ, or it's difficult to maintain, it's still painful to take some a relationship that you've had for a long time and watch it be dissolved by somebody who just simply can't stand what you believe. Now, if what you believe is, I don't want to go to the orgy, you think, well, that's not what Peter's saying. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Don't be surprised at the world's reaction. Some will think you're a decent person. Most will revile you and be shocked that you've changed. That's the simple truth. Some people, hey, it's good. Good to see you, right? The folks that aren't saved, but they also don't go to the drinking parties, they're happy to see you get out of that. Hey, good for you. You needed to knock that drinking off. Great. You want to go to church? I don't do that church thing. Oh, now you're going to become a Bible thumper, right? That middle ground, that big gray area between I go to church, I believe, I go to church is kind of in the gray area, I believe who Jesus Christ is, I believe the truth of the gospel, I am saved, and I hate God 100%, I don't want anything to do with Him. That's way down here, very narrow, very narrow, huge gray area. And there are people just above the I hate God that are pastors, leading congregations, convincing people that what they believe is the truth. As you move towards Christ, there's a lot of folks that are not going to want that happen and want to drag you back down. But the ones above you that aren't Christians, but they're acting better in the world, they'll say, hey, good for you. But take it easy. Don't get too churchy on me. But, uh, you know, 
We don't drink. We do not drink at all. But, uh, you know, we do like uh, gossiping and telling stories and we cheat on our taxes together. But we don't drink, doggone it, because that's a sin and we're not sinners in this place. Most will revile you and be shocked that you've changed. I can tell you that much for sure. They'll doubt your sincerity. But, beloved, where Peter ends this, there will come a day when they will doubt no longer. (laughs) It will happen. There will come a time when you as a believer will be called to roll and there'll be a whole bunch of non-believers that will know for sure what you said was true and your claim was true. You're come to judge. I love Peter because he does a great job of this eternal perspective, right? He, he keeps drawing us back. We got to talk about what we're doing here, but know that what we're doing here is very small uh, with regards to time. Eternity is absence of time. There's no time in eternity. We have to worry about what we do. We have to eat and sleep and do things here according to a clock, and we have to monitor that, but someday that's not going to be the case. And when that day comes, all will give an account. All. Yes, even those who died and were believers are alive. They will, along with all believers, have all their resurrected bodies at the end of the age. Everybody is coming back. Everybody's coming back. So logically, Coming back at the end of times, right? The end, is, the end is near. Peter starts to get a little fire and brimstone here, which I dig. The, in, in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. <laughs> I can see the swooping. The end is near, right? It's coming. You know, prepare yourselves or whatever. He doesn't get into that, you know, turn or burn. That's not his attitude here. But what Peter is letting us know is not be afraid that Christ's going to come any minute and, and smite you in the midst of your sin or whatever. It's that there was and is nothing preventing Christ from returning. The end of all things is at hand. Christ can come back any minute. Now, we forget that, even as a church. We, we like to say, come Lord Jesus, but not really. Not until I can at least see how this movie ends or the series, the final episodes coming up this week, or I got a grandbaby on the way. There's a million things that are really good that we love to do in this world. What Peter's saying is all of it pales in comparison to the return of Christ and the beginning of eternity. All of it. None of it matters compared to that. Peter was excited about this, but knew there was work to be done. And the best way to work is with diligence. Once again, we're not called to suffer for suffering's sake. We're not called to work for work's sake. We're not called to be afraid just to be, to be fearful. We are diligent towards a task. And how do we do that? When we say diligence, Peter's going to tell us. Self-control, sober mind. Get a hold of ourselves. This isn't a drinking verse per se. Uh, the, the hardcore anti-drink you know, committee will say, well, here it is, sober mind. You can't drink and have a sober mind. Well, okay, that's fine. I don't disagree. If you're very drunk, your mind is no longer sober. But there's far more to being a a sober-minded than the absence of drink. There are people that are teetotalers that are not sober-minded at all. They're rash and impulsive and angry and quick to act and react. And they don't think and they don't stop and they don't consult and they don't understand that they need help. God has given us the help of the Holy Spirit, the help of our local congregation. We are supposed to utilize those things. Controlling oneself and being thoughtful and intentional is critical. Intentional is a great word. I have two or three words that I've subbed in and out of this, but I liked intentional. If you do something intentionally, it usually means you thought about it, right? 
If I bumped into you and spilled your coffee, I'm like, oh, whoops. Sorry. You'd say, oh, no, no problem. Ah, it happens and you didn't see me here. If I walk up to you, good morning. <laughs> whoops. Sorry. Sorry. You approached me, looked at the coffee, and swatted it out of my hand. What? Well, I didn't mean to. Of course you did. You did it with intent. That was an intentional spilling of my coffee. You're, I'm probably going to get a different reaction. Probably not. Oh, no worries. Probably going to be like, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. I just, uh, whoops. Nope. No whoops is going to cover it now. You need to account for what you've done. Church, if what we're doing is controlling ourselves, being thoughtful, and we're being intentional with what we do in our church, with our families, with our peers, that means we are intending to take the actions. We're thinking about it. We're we are uh, not being rash, and we are expected to be called to account for our actions. You did that intentionally. Yes, I did, and I'll tell you why. Because Christ changed my life, and I want you to know that. And I want you to see that there's something better than what this world has. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why I pray for you. That's why I'm inviting you to church. It's not accidentally, hey, if you want to come to church with me, that's cool, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know? No, I'm really intentional about this. This is a big deal. That self-control and sober mind goes a long way, even in the world. Now, they'll get frustrated when your self-control and sober mind doesn't go their way. But if we're saying that it's intentional, if we're doing things with intent, then I am ready to be called to account for my actions. I knew exactly what I was doing. I thought it through. And here's what I'm extending to you, and this is the the truth that I'm speaking, and I know you may may not like it, and I know how you've told me you feel about it, but it's still the truth, and you're going to need to hear it from me. And uh, I'm just going to say my piece. That's a lot better than, oh, you and your stupid whatever else. I'll tell you what, you know, th- this is the reason why churches are failing. Like, oh, here we go, right? I'm just tuning you out. You're just, you're just hollering at me. Well, you know, it's just, <sighs> well, that's not self-controlled and that's not sober-minded. That's anger. That's frustration. And folks, I get angry and I get frustrated. Um, my wife will tell you, it's gotten, hopefully, I hope it's gotten better over time, but it used to be when I get angry and frustrated, it's like, well, that's it. I'm angry and frustrated. And there was like a virtual... Uh, a room that I could just back in and close the door. You mad? No, I'm not mad. You want to talk about it? No. I'm fine. It's like, and I used to think, well, that's being self-controlled and sober-minded. Just bottle everything up. Don't talk about anything. Be a stalwart. And over time, I've learned that that's not helpful in a relationship. And it certainly isn't helpful for trying to communicate anything that I want to communicate. I need to express things. Now, I want to be thoughtful. I don't want to lash out and holler and yell, but I do need to be controlled, sober-minded, and communicate. I need to control myself, be thoughtful, but be intentional. And we see this kind of ending with all this being important, but loving each other is the most important. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's another one that, you know, we don't don't want to get this... uh, too, too, too twisted, as it were, but love does not remove sin. I love my wife. I love her more than any gift that God has ever given me. My love does not save her and never will from eternity in hell. doesn't do that. What this covering is, is as sin, as she commits sin to me or others, my love for her forgets those things, right? This is the famous verse that we read, love is patient, love is kind, love does no memory of wrongdoing, right? That's the point here. Love, true love, 
Godly love for one another, the kind of love we're called to have as a congregation, means when someone in the congregation commits a sin and repents, that our love covers that. I believe your repentance is true. You, I will be praying for you. Pray for me to, to, to not allow the sin to manifest, the, the memory of your sin to manifest. In my, but I know. And, and pretty soon everybody gets closer together. Has anyone ever seen relationships that were on the fence, marriages and and they got real rocky, and then they sat down and had it out, talked about everything, and mended fences, and it seems like it was like a, it's like a whole new marriage in some regards, right? That's a real thing the Bible tells us. Love covers a multitude of sins. What kind of love? Love that we are not capable of on our own, right? This isn't about, I bought you roses. I mean, what more do you want? Let's cover the sin with that, I guess. I love you. I told you that. That's not the kind of love we're talking about here. This is love where your heart is broken for somebody in sin. You, you want them to be restored to Christ. You want them to be restored to the marriage. I want this right. I want it to be the way the Word says we should be. And I love you. And if you love me, let's do this together. All this designed to emulate exactly what our relationship is with Christ. Christ's love literally covered a multitude of sins. Am I faithful to Christ? No. I blew it. I cheat on him endlessly, if you will. But he loves me. His unidirectional love is more than enough to overcome anything I could ever do. And I love him. And I screwed it up again. I'm so sorry. And Christ says, I believe you. And I'll believe you when you tell me tomorrow. I don't have that kind of love in me. There won't be a tomorrow after enough times with me. Somehow Christ is better than that. That's the kind of thing we're striving for. Covering a multitude of sins. Then Peter goes on to tell us to basically be nice and use our gifts. He's talking a little bit about gifts here, and he starts with hospitality. Be hospitable, even if you don't want to. Man, I just, I, I reread and I proofread and I end up with even if want to. I'm like, what is going on? Even if you don't want to, be hospitable and trust that God will bless it. I don't know about, I don't know about anybody else, but there are times when you just, I, I can't do it. I can't invite anybody over, I can't hang out, there's just not enough time, or I'm not in the mood, or I don't like them, or, you know, they drive me nuts, or they wreck stuff, or they make the house a mess, or whatever. Do it. Trust that God will bless it. Sometimes, even coming to church and putting on a happy face by the end of church, it's like, man, I really do have a happy face on. (laughs) I'm glad I came. I didn't want to go out to that thing, but I'm glad that I went because I got to visit with people. And I had a conversation with somebody that I would never have had. It was really impactful, and they're going to be on my prayer list, and we're going to be accountable to this one another. And I think both of us now are in a better place because of this. And Paul calls us here to use our gifts for one another as good stewards of God's very grace. I love, <laughs> I love this so much. In verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If anybody ever wondered why, don't we all just get the same gifts? No. God's grace is varied. Some people are, are really, really good at singing and playing guitar. Other people are like me. And we get by with what grace God has shed on me. Right? He has given me something that I don't deserve uh, capability that I didn't manifest in myself. Oh, I practice. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I do have to, you know, move air through my vocal cords and all that mess, but I didn't craft this. I didn't go to the vocal cord store and save up and get vocal cords and, or whatever. I bought a guitar, but I'm, there's a 
billion people that bought guitars doesn't mean he can play them at all. Some people are better. Some people are worse. The grace is varied. But it's God's gig. And spoiler alert, our spiritual gifts are not for us. Nor are they for God directly. Now by this I mean, God doesn't give me the gift of prophecy so that I can tell God what's going to happen. <laughs> I don't, God doesn't give me the gift of musicianship so that I can play something for God that he could never play on his own or could finally be achieved. Gifts of the Spirit from God are for other people, specifically intended for that. The gift of prophecy is to be able to prophesy. The gift of serving is to serve to other people, prophesy to other people. Gift of worship, lead others in worship of God. Not to go and just have an expert time of worship between me and God and really just blow God's mind with my capabilities. No! But a lot of times we, we, we turn this over about like, well, no, no, this is, this is kind of for me. I have a gift of discernment. I do. I, this is one thing that, I, that the Holy Spirit gave me. I, and, and if being able to discern something for my own benefit, I have no use for it. And I tend not to bother with it very often because of that. But every once in a while, if there's an opportunity to share or ask a question, really feel connected with that, hey, this is good. The Holy Spirit's nudged me. Have you thought about this or that or the other? Hey, maybe we get somewhere with that. These gifts are intended. And when we get this through our head, exactly what Paul's saying, things are going to be different. Our gifts start to mean something and become useful. Gifts, what kind of gifts? Speaking? Speak the good news. Don't speak in tongues to God. That's not what that's for. Making noises that nobody can understand except for angels or whatever you're telling yourself, there's no evidence that that's a spiritual gift. What's the point? If I can't use it to directly speak or do something useful for other people, it certainly isn't a spiritual gift. Speaking, speak the good news. Serving, serve by God's strength. If God isn't in it, then the glory will be yours. A sad face. Probably thinking, well, glory's not so bad. I mean, a little bit of glory can go a long way maybe. Sure, for a while. But everybody that's gotten all kinds of glory on this earth thus far have died. I mean, there's a couple that have made it out. But the most glorified person you can think of, dead. Dead, buried. No more glory for them. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Man, that him, that's God. If what we do, if we speak and serve and we use our spiritual gifts and we do that with God as the center, as God as the driving force, God as the reason, then God gets the glory. Great things happen. Amen. Hey, you, are, you, you saved that person. You did this. You did that. I, I was there. I was part of it. Blessed to be there. But God deserves the glory and should get it. So if you, wanna, if you want to, to make, if you want to do an overture for me, if you want to laud me for a job well done, let's come to, come to church with me and hear the reason that I did what I did. Well, let's hear it. And the reason is God gave me the strength and the wherewithal to do it, and so I did it. And uh, that's, that's what happened. Well, well, when you say it that way, it's not that great. Like, precisely. <laughs> it's not that great. Because God could have said, you know, uh, number next in line, you. There's the power. Now I'm giving you the power and the gift. Go. And they did it. Now they get the glory. No, it should still be God, right? God chose me. God put me in this place. Honored, blessed, happy, ecstatic that it's happened. Loving the outcome, but glory to God. All this talk about glory. Back to suffering, everybody. Don't get too excited about this. This is Peter's way. Hey, 
in tithe, man, it's going to be great, but do know, just when you get ready to crest this spiritual high and you're, you're realizing your spiritual gifts and you're seeking the Lord and things are going your way, don't be surprised when trials come. This is normal and should be expected. I can't tell you how... I don't think... I don't know that I've ever sat in a church and heard somebody say, hey, believers, get, let's get ready to suffer. Not because like, yay, suffering, but like, you've got to know it's coming. Know it's coming. When suffering comes, oh, here we go. This is the reason I'm prepared myself to suffer. If you are going to go on a boat, would you go out there uh, in like a full-dress tuxedo and... Uh, things that can't be, you can't get wet, and do your hair up real nice, and get it all in position, and then go riding on a, on a speedboat, and expect everything to be good or okay? No, your clothes are going to be ruined, my hair's a mess. People would say, why in the world were you wearing that outfit for a boat trip? You can't even get in the water. Well, I didn't know. I, I don't know. I'm like, well, you're a fool. If only a fool would do that, unless you're getting married on a boat or something, right? But if you're going skydiving, and you wear a tuxedo and nothing else, that will end badly for you. You need something to, to slow your fall, or you will die. So many times in life, we listen to the truth of Christ, and we say, yes, absolutely. I agree with everything there, but I am not going to steal myself. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to consult. I'm not going to worry about any of that. Then suffering comes, and we go, what? Uh, now what? This is suffering, and I'm not ready for this. Why? Why aren't you ready? I'm preaching to myself here. Woe is me. Oh, woe is you. Fooey, Chris. I can look at the mirror and say, you're an idiot. You know exactly what to expect. It says it right here. You preached it. And then you forgot. Then you got in the airplane in your suit and tie looking really snazzy. Look at all you idiots in your suits with these backpacks or whatever. Not me. I look the way I like to look. They all live and I die. Woe is me. No, you're a fool. When you step into the airplane of belief and you're going to try to get out here and do the work of Christ... Know what you need to have to survive. What you need to have is an understanding that, okay, it's going to be rough up there. I'm going to have to jump from a plane. I might have to be in a boat. God's going to provide me with what I need, but I'm not going to be surprised with it, right? If I'm, if I'm moving through life and something's about to happen and someone in the church comes up to me and says, hey, I wanted to pray with you about this, that, and the other, let's pray. Please. Is that a parachute? I'll take it. I assume this is going to be needed. Why? Because I've been praying for God to move me along. Something bad's going to happen. I'm getting called to my boss's office. You are fired if you keep talking and praying at lunch. We're forbidding that. I knew this day might come. What am I going to do? Oh, no, I'm not fired. Throw the table over, kick the desk. No one can fire me. I've been here 15 years. No, that's not the response. If you're prepared for that, you're going to say, that's really unfortunate to hear. Is there any way that we could make this work out where I don't have to sacrifice my private time that I believe is mine to do with what I choose? Is there any way we could work this out? I'd hate to leave this place. I love working here. But I understand that, you know, it seems like powers that be here are not happy with what's going on. I want to try to make it right. What a different response that's going to be. I'm not saying cave. I'm not saying, oh, no, I'm going to keep doing it despite you, or I guess I quit. Forget it. I'm out of here. No. Try to find something in the middle. How can you approach it with that? You make yourself aware. When you see things coming, when you see suffering is looming around, expect it. Don't be surprised. In lieu of the surprise, be thankful that any suffering we endured is a pittance of what Christ endured. 
No matter what happens to me, jobs, family, friends, tragedy, you name it, compared to the wrath of God, is, uh, it's not, there is no comparison. It's like comparing apples to the universe or something, right? Like, well, I don't know. I, I guess they're somewhat similar. No, they're not similar at all, right? What Christ endured for us with the suffering that he went through is absolutely, unequivocally, far greater than anything we will ever suffer. And when God's glory is revealed, this is, this is right here in the, in the Word, it will be even sweeter. As we move through life and we endure suffering, we know that there's going to come a time where uh, all of our suffering is going to be manifest as God's glory that we, get to bla- that we get to bask in. A little bit of that glory that we get to see on God, we got to be a part of. I suffered for that little bit, and I'd do it again. I'd do it 10,000 times more. And do we know that now? Is it, can we realize it now? No, sadly, no. But we know it's true. It's right here in the Word. So any suffering will do? I don't think so, Tim. If you're old enough, you probably get that reference. Emma's probably like, wait, what's going on? Who's Tim? Not Timothy. Uh, but anyway, if you suffer for the name of Christ, that's a blessing. If you suffer because you committed crimes slash sins, that's deserved. <laughs> okay? There's, there's no suffering there. Once again, just to reiterate, so I said you I do this, this isn't about charging a headline into suffering or inducing it. Right? Putting your car on jack stands and not chalking the wheels, getting underneath it and having it roll onto you. Well, that's a tragedy. And there's going to be suffering. But come on. I mean, the least you could have done is chalk the wheels, right? Anybody ever saw it? You blew it. You were not prepared for that suffering. Now, that's not a perfect example, but there's times like that. Yeah, it's true that this stinks what happened. Sorry you got crushed or you got your leg broke, but if you knew what to do and didn't do it, it's kind of the fault's on you. I mean, it's still sad, I guess, but like you did it to yourself. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be doing this to ourselves. When the world comes at us because of the work we're doing for Christ, that's what we're talking about here, the suffering that's going to become a blessing. If we're inducing our own suffering because we're behaving badly or making poor choices, that's, there's no glory in that for anybody. And once again, the shame, there's no shame in suffering for Jesus, but glory for God. It's like an instant conversion. The shame that one would feel when you suffer for your own wrongdoing becomes glory for God when you suffer for God. There's no shame in it. You're one of our people can smile through that. That's why. There's no shame there. It's promised. And it starts with us. If we can't control ourselves, how can we teach the world to do so? Plain and simple. I mean, just cutting right to the quick here. It, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Obedience is important, and God's there to help us even in that. When you hear these words, you hear these things that I'm saying, don't think for a minute that I'm wanting for everybody to get outside and Get yourself sorted out. Get a hold of yourself. It's the name of the sermon, right? You have a part to play here. You do have a part to play. You have to get a hold of yourself. What are you going to get a hold of yourself with? The, hopefully the knowledge and understanding of God. That's what you're going to do. It's not about you just looking the part or acting good. This is about God changing us. God will help us become obedient. God will help us become better servants. God will gift us spiritually to serve and preach and help one another. It's all from God. But God has given us in his divine knowledge a choice to make. 
The HSV, that's the Hecox Standard Version, when I summarize Scripture. If decent folk are hardly saved, what hope do scumbags have? That's not what he says. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When we look around and we see a lot of righteous people and we know that they're not all saved, man, I mean, you talk about a bummer. These are the folks that I'd call the good people. And we're looking at maybe 10% saved? Yeesh. What about the folks over there? Well, suffering's rough. We can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. We don't have to sweat those details, right? But this, this passage, this, this, this quote that he has made from uh, Psalms that I've summarized here is acting right doesn't save you. Guaranteed, if you're not acting right, you are in big trouble. So given a two, as a believer, act right. Get a hold of yourself. I can't. I'm struggling. Pray. Seek counsel. Every time I walk by a bar, I don't know if anyone ever hears smokes or drinks or both, but if you're ever having one or if you have both of those vices, you try to quit one, you better quit both. I have tons of friends who are like, I quit smoking. And then they went out to a bar and people were smoking. And sure enough, they're smoking again because these get, these get linked. This is like, that's one example, but this is how a lot of things go in our world. Oh, I struggle with lust, so I'm not going to go to strip clubs, but I'll just watch TV. <laughs> TV is like a strip club in your house these days, so good luck with that. You're, what you're going to find is that in order to do this, in order to live this life, you're going to need a lot more than just a, a couple of bold steps. You're going to need... God's help every step of the way. This isn't about fixing ourselves. Getting a hold of ourselves is, is, is a thing that we have to do, but it's not about just keep, keeping God out of the picture and cleaning up our act. We need to Jesus Christ up our act, and we can't do that without Jesus Christ. All right, the final four. I've tried this several ways, but I like the final four. Four points that we're going to go through real quick based on this chapter. Number one, Christ suffered, thus we suffer. Number two, Christ lived by faith, thus we lived by faith. Number three, Christ cared for his church family, thus we care for our church family. And lastly, Christ died for us, thus we die for others. Maybe you're getting some furrowed eyebrows. Good. First up, Christ suffered, thus we suffer. Christ's suffering was not for his glory, but the Father's. Now, we can have a, I'd love to have a longer discussion about the Trinity and God and how all this works, and that we, let's have it. But suffice to say, Christ's work on the cross was an act of submission to the Father's will. As God, submitting to God the Father, miraculous, mysterious, yes. But that's the example that Christ set for us intentionally. When we go all the way back to this intent, this wasn't just willy-nilly. Well, I guess, uh, what, what, is that what dad wants? Well, then fine. I got nothing better to do. Oh, no, no, no. Christ was teaching us through his sacrifice how we're supposed to live our life. Likewise, our suffering should be for God's glory. If our suffering is not glorifying God, not accomplishing the will of the Father, then it's our suffering. And we, we warrant every bit of it, probably, and any glory that comes from it is probably misplaced. If we can't point our suffering to work done for God's glory, we suffer for ourselves, and we don't want to do that. Once again, this is not advocating suffering. Suffering in and of itself is as powerful as baptism. Baptism for God's glory in the, in the death of Jesus Christ, 
Very, very powerful baptism. We talked about that in our small group today. But it's because of the things that came after it. Suffering alone, useless. Suffering for God's glory in the way Christ suffered, very powerful suffering. Very powerful. It's not suffering. It's God's glory. It's Christ's work. Anything you put in the front would work. In this case, we have the Word of God telling us ones that are practical then and today and 2,000 years from now will still be useful. Baptism, good thing. Get it done. Know why you're doing it. Understand it. Suffering, good thing. Go through it. Know why you're doing it. Those are going to apply no matter what happens. Oh, we're all in VR. We all live in space, whatever. There's still going to be suffering. There's still the opportunity to baptize. Do it. Faith is knowing God will not abandon us. I mention this a lot. In every one of my sermons, I think, I always mention something about God not abandoning us. I hope you understand that is true. It is true. It's not me making it up. I'm not trying to be like, hey, God's got your back. Not that. You will not be abandoned. It is a fundamental tenet of our belief structure that we will make it. The saved will be saved forever. If you're elect, you are in. Now what are you going to do? In the meantime, what are you going to do? Sit in the waiting room and thumb through a magazine you read a thousand times? Man, I hate waiting. When am I going to go to heaven? I'm so tired of this. No! Put the magazine down. Walk around the waiting room. Walk outside. Anyone else want to get in? I got this dentist is the best. Come wait with me in here. We're going to learn some stuff together. Well, I, this is the funnest waiting room I've ever been in. That could be our world. Instead, we've got people shuffling around. Oh, man. I guess I'm suffering today. They're out of, you know, the mocha, sugar-free mocha. So, oh, That ain't suffering, church. Number two, Christ lived by faith, thus we live by faith. Christ never sinned and lived a perfect life doing the Father's work. Amen. We all have sinned and rely on Christ to block those out. Anybody that calls himself an apostle or a, 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 a member, a, a brother of Christ, and they have, they have vanquished sin in their lives are lying. All have sinned and fallen short. If Christ is not active and alive and working in your life, if you are done with that because he's already cleansed you, you are not done with nothing. And you better be getting down on your face and begging for forgiveness and repent of that nonsense. I hear people that preach and say they haven't sinned in 10, 12 years. Are you kidding me? You, like, folks, it's nuts out there, for real. We have sinned. I have sinned. I sinned, I can't even count. I bet I've sinned 200 times today. Easy. Ashamed of all of it, need Christ's help every, every, every step of the way, every second, every day. When I say pray without ceasing, this isn't about walking around, Lord, help me, Lord. No, it's in your mind as you, someone pulls out in front of you, like, man, I wish they'd die. Lord, I don't wish they'd die. Help me. Help me, Lord. Look, look at this idiot. Oh, Lord, they're not an idiot, right? And over time, oh, maybe he's not an idiot. Maybe he had a tough day at work, right? These are things I tell myself. In prayer, there are people suffering, suffering out there because of their own doing, suffering because the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Help me, Lord, bring them into my life in a way that I can talk to them about the truth. The rain doesn't matter. Jesus Christ does. Well, but we need the rain to go. Oh, I don't disagree with that. We need the rain, or we don't need the rain, depending on your perspective. But I can tell you what you absolutely need, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, that said, we're no longer slaves to sin. Of the sins that I've committed today... Guess how many I'm enslaved to? None. I can say that with confidence. There's sin in my life. There's uh, thorns in my side, whatever you want to say. But I'm not a slave to it. That's not a part of me. 
It's just because I do it a lot and I hate it a lot doesn't mean, well, that's just, this is good because God gave it to me and God doesn't make junk. God does absolutely make junk. Like we call it unrighteous vessels, but he does it. I hate to break your bubble, but, but don't be junk. I'm not saying, well, I guess I'm junk. You don't want to be junk. It doesn't, doesn't end well for junk, but it is made by God. I am not a slave to my sin, even my perennial sins, the ones that I hate every day, every day. Do they control me? No. I choose them a lot because I'm such an idiot and I can't get my act together and I wish God would take it away from me or, or take that part of my brain or something, but he hasn't chosen to do that. But that sin is not good because I like it so much. It's still sin and I still hate it. This kind of faith comes from God alone. And through this faith, we glorify him. This is the faith that Christ had. Now, Christ was sinless. But even sinless, he never rebelled against the Father. He served all the way to the cross. He could have at any point said, enough. You know what, Peter? Get that sword out. We're taking everybody's ear off till somebody gets their act together around here. No, he doesn't do that. No, sword goes away. It's time. It's time for me to die for you. We hate him. Kill him. Yep. I know. I'll do it. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. That should be our attitude. If we're living by faith the way that Christ lived by faith, faith that the Father's will would be done, not Christ's will, but the Father's will would be done, he believed. And he went. And it was. That's the faith we need. Number three, Christ cared for his church family. Thus, we care for our church family. Now, we don't typically think of the apostles as a church, but they were. Someone will probably want to argue with me about this. That's fine. I'd love to have that discussion. They had an elder. That was Jesus. They had jobs to do, and they worked tirelessly to spread the good news. In many regards, except for the fact that we don't have Jesus in the flesh here as our leader, it's the same exercise. Christ cared for those apostles like family, and we should emulate that. This is pretty simple stuff. He never caved for them, but he cared for them. Now, there are times when they probably begged and Christ said, fine. But I'm not talking about that kind of caving. I'm talking about he never compromised the truth. If they were acting badly, if they were delving into sin that was going to destroy them, whew, back. This includes all the way up to the end, Judas. He was there. And I'm telling you, Christ knew and he still hung out. I can't square that up, right? Uh, but I, I'll tell you this. If Christ can care for Judas all the way to the end, all the way through, knowing how that has to end, we shouldn't sweat that kind of stuff happening in our church. If suddenly we find out that 10% of the church is completely apostate, and like, out they go, well... <laughs> If, if Judas could be part of the apostles, then I shouldn't be surprised by this. Does it change our mission? Did it change Christ's mission? No. Christ went to the cross for those who were chosen by the Father, and Christ set the example for us that despite his best efforts with Judas, Jesus Christ's best efforts while he was on the earth with Judas, the Father had not elected Judas. He was not his, and that's that. That should be our peace. We care for our church family as Christ did. Someone's doing something nutty? Okay, get that. Come on, knock that off. You know better than that. Someone's having some tough times? How can I help you? What can we do? 
Now, the answer might be a lot of times, no. Probably was for him, too. Hey, you need help with that? No, I can put my own sandals on, right? Oh, whatever. My sandal broke. I know how to fix it. You showed me once. I'll do it again. Okay. But if you need help, I'm here. Right? We have deaths in the church. We have financial troubles in the church. We don't always have to stop and, and do a bunch of stuff. We learn how to cope with that as we move through things together. But if, if help is needed, it becomes easier to ask if you know people are willing to help. That's all that I'm saying. Care for our church the way Christ cared for his church. He set that example with 12 people of exactly how things need to be done. He was in charge. He knew what was going on. He set the tone. He set the pace. They came. They followed. They learned. They rebelled. They argued. They denied to his face. I would never do that. Then they did exactly what he said they were going to do. This is exactly what's going on in churches today. And this is Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. If we think we're going to outgun Christ at church management, we are nuts. It is not going to happen. We make peace with that, and exactly what Peter said here, love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to flub it up. I'm going to flub it up. I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to make somebody mad, and I pray that they'll love me enough to cover that sin, that when I ask for repentance, when I finally get, come to my senses, they can say, I understand. We all make mistakes. Finally, Christ died for us, thus we die for others. We may not be called to give our lives for Christ's kingdom here. But we are called to die to ourselves in order to do God's will. That's a whole simulation of baptism, right? You die to your sins, you're resurrected. I'm dying to myself every day. The things I want, I want to put those to death. I want to put myself to death. Because if I'm dead, then that means Christ is doing the work through me. That's what I want. We cannot serve ourselves and our God. One must go. I'll stand by that. If you're like, well, I, can, I, I figured out a way to do it. You're fooling yourself. If you're serving yourself, you're not serving God. Now, God has our best interest at heart. I'm not, I'll tell you that 100%. But our best interest might be getting flogged to death in Malaysia for the kingdom. That would be best for us. The world will say, no, 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 no. That's not best. You need to get off that. You need to get out of there. Make a compromise and live. Not true. And fundamentally here what we see is a sacrificial attitude allows God to get the glory he deserves. Sacrificing, knowing that what we have and what we are is not ours, having that attitude changes everything. It's not my body. It's God's body that's being crushed. Right? It's not my family that's being affected. It's God's family. Now, we don't want to take that too far and say, it's not my sin. It's God's sin. Nope. The sin is yours, but the glory and the goodness is God's. So what about us? What suffering have you endured for God? If that's a very short list, something to be in prayer about. Not, well, I guess I'll go out and buy me a whip and start flogging myself, get some suffering on the old card. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But if there's a place that you are scared, people you don't want to talk to, you're afraid something's going to go wrong and maybe suffering would happen, so you've steered clear of it, maybe it's time to take an action. Maybe it's time to ask somebody a question you know is going to make them mad. Maybe it's time to sit down and tell them what you wish they would do. Maybe it's time to tell somebody that uh, I'd like for you to come to church with me again. You've asked me a ton time. I told you if you ask me again, I'll tell you that I'll never speak to you again. Well, then that's how it's going to have to be, I guess. But I want you to come. Don't want to come to church? Can we just do a Bible study? Oh, I don't want to talk to you either. Okay. How are you keeping sin from setting up sh uh, shop? See, another one. Not show. I guess it is a show. But how are you keeping sin from setting up shop in your temple? Real easy if we're not looking, if we're not paying attention, we're not doing a good job of managing our temple, sin finds a way in there, sets up shop, starts selling stuff. 
Pretty soon it becomes part of the temple. We don't know what's going on there. If we can't as a church, if we can't as believers within the church live in a, a manner according to God through consistent and constant repentance, renewal, we're not going to make any impact on the world around us. Third, what can we do to love one another better? That one and the first one might go hand in hand. You know, we use the term like tough love. Sometimes loving somebody is going to cause suffering for you and them. And then that's, that leads us to the last point here is what is our attitude about suffering for others? Suffering for ourselves, suffering for God? Maybe we could do that. What about suffering for somebody else's sake? You know, God got all the glory from Christ's work on the cross, but he died for me. He suffered for me. He paid my sin debt. I can't do that for anybody else. Don't need to. Of course, Christ already did it. But what is what suffering can I lay on the altar for somebody else's behalf? Maybe just to show them that I care. Maybe to show them that God is real and the word, word is true. That the things I say, I mean. Notice, that once again, not, not let's go out and endure, but what's my attitude? Am I willing to do that? Are we willing to suffer for other people? Or do we just like to talk about it and then guard ourselves like, a, you know, it's nobody's, no, no big deal? Let's think about those things, especially this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for suffering, Lord. And I don't mean that to sound trite or silly. Um, but, but like baptism, Lord, you've, you've given suffering a capability that seems to be unmatched. But not just any suffering, just like baptism, not just any suffering will do, Lord. And I pray that as a body of believers, as individual believers, we take stock when we, when we look at things like submission and suffering, submitting to others, submitting to the government, submitting to our spouses, suffering for them with attitudes and, and, and a perspective like your perspective when you were on the cross, Lord. I pray we look at those things and we think about those things and we, we spend time in your word with one another to figure out how you would have us leverage suffering for your kingdom. And Lord, if we're living comfortable lives with no suffering at all, we are likely missing an opportunity. Not just to suffer for suffering's sake, Lord, but an opportunity to glorify your name in a way that only self-sacrifice can do. And Lord, I pray as we leave this place and we go out into the world where we're going to be able to encounter tons of suffering, Lord, that we don't become inducers. We don't want to start fights and, and invoke suffering because of bad decisions or poor choices of words or attitudes that are negative or hateful, Lord, but that, um, that we speak truth and we do this with love. And while we expect the world to be lost in sin, Lord, as the world begins to emerge and see the truth and they want to know more about the truth and they choose to give their lives to you that we as a church can put our money where our mouth is and say yeah that, now the now the tough part's going to begin when you have to get rid of your old life and the people from these other you know walks of life like we talked about here with gentiles that they what are you talking about you're not going to come to the parties anymore lord and help us to encourage a world that's going to have to go through that perhaps for the first time to do it to suffer through that to endure it, knowing that there's something better on the other side, Lord. Lord, I guess I just want us to be encouragers in the world. 
not just for the sake of encouragement, Lord, but to encourage people to find their way to you, hear the truth of you, give their life to you, and then run the race. And we'll do it together with you, of course, Lord. 